from the territories to Titan Towers to TNA and all points in between. He's seen and done it all. And now he's here to share the real story behind wrestling's biggest moments, controversies, and characters. The MLW Radio Network presents Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you are listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? It's just a beautiful day in the neighborhood, by God. I am doing great, and I want to thank everybody for listening to us today, and thank everybody that's listened in the past. Thanks for downloading and checking us out. We are fired up to have you listening. Uh, We have really enjoyed the growth of the show, and that is in large part thanks to you just spreading the word, man. We haven't done any advertising. We've tried to do you know, as much as we can to be fan-friendly on Twitter and we really appreciate your interaction there. Let's go ahead and get that out of the way. I am at Hey Hey It's Conrad. He is at Bruce Pritchard. Don't put a T in his name. And of course, the show is at Pritchard Show. Today, we're going to talk about the ECW WWF connection in 1996, 1997. All right, so let's get into ECW. Uh, ECW is something that you and I have debated in private for a long time, Bruce. And I'm looking forward to arguing with you in public, if we will, today. Uh, about how great ECW was, and I'm sure we'll get into a lot of it. But what we really want to bingo. Talk about, look at you! What right, a, I just want to bring back some of your ECW memories. Oh my God! What an asshole! Okay, so let's talk about uh, you knew Paul Heyman in 32. Okay, you knew <laughs> you're still a heel. You knew Paul Heyman uh, a long time before you guys had a working relationship with ECW. When did you first meet Paul and how did that come about where you guys started to think about maybe working together, which is something at the time Vince had never done before. Well, I first met Paul in Dothan, Alabama, when I went down to visit my brother, uh, who was working the Southeast territory and Paul was down there helping Eddie Gilbert out with some booking. And it was, uh, you know, Paul lived in New York. I lived in Connecticut. And from time to time, we'd get together and hit the China Club in Manhattan from time to time and tear the city up. So you guys were just buds who just happened to work in the wrestling business, but on different sides of the fence. Pretty much, yeah. Okay, cool. So uh, when's the first piece of talent you guys remember? Oh, 32. Wow. Uh, on the wrestling observer message board, somebody brought up a great one that even I didn't remember, uh, apparently back in maybe 93, uh, Matt Osborne came to ECW and was like in a dress down version of his doink costume. And, and they called it born again. Uh, was that a talent trade or a loan or had he been canned by the WWF at the time? At the time, I think that was just simply, um, wow. I don't know. Why the fuck would you ask me that? Well, just asking. Uh, I didn't know if, if that was the first I don't piece know. of a talent uh, I, My dates are all screwed up. I know that Matt was probably alone. Um, I don't really remember. Okay. Well, let's let's go to another one. Um, Furnace and LaFon were kind of early as well. And I think that would have been in 1996. Um, they, were, they, they had a huge success in all Japan. They started working some dates stateside for ECW. And the next thing I know, they're involved in the WWF. And I think that's going to be around November 96. Uh, 
Yeah, I think they actually made their debut the same pay-per-view The Rock did. How's that for some trivia? What was wow. the thought about why you wanted to bring those guys over? They had been in all Japan for years and years and had good success there, but they didn't, or they don't even now, to me, look like a guy, a pair of guys that Vince would get excited about it. Do you remember what exactly it was about those guys that intrigued you? Well, first and LaFond, they were a good tag team, and they were they worked well together. They had some name recognition in all Japan, and they both wanted to, in particular, Doug Furness, wanted to work stateside and spend some more time at home and not do those long trips back and forth to Japan and spend as much time as they did away from their families. So there was interest, but there was also interest on WCW's part for them as a team. Well, in the middle of all that, you had ECW and Paul Heyman, who was using them on a regular basis. So I uh, called Paul directly and asked him what his situation was, what their situation was, and if they would be interested in coming and meeting with us. And we, we met with Furnace and LaFon and talked to them, and part of the deal was to help Paul out that we would continue to let them work at ECW for a period of time. And in that meeting, the, the, the meeting was with Paul and Vince. In that meeting, we started to discuss other ways that ECW could benefit the WWF because we had no real working relationship with them other than Paul and I have been friends for years. WCW was kind of in a mode where they were looking to, to take a lot of our talent and, you know, Hogan had gone over and Savage is, you know, whatever point and, and things were happening and WCW was looking for, for a lot of the same independent talent or, freelance talent, if you will, that we were. Well, having ECW, they were kind of in the middle. And being able to help them out and help them to develop talent and have a place for talent to go and work before they come to the show was an important, an important thing for us because it, it would enable us to secure talent, get them under contract, give them a place to work, that being ECW, and and then bring them in when we were ready for them. The thing it did for ECW was allow them to have some decent name talent, and from time to time, if Paul needed it, we would you know work out something with some of our bigger names as well. So help me understand. Are you saying that you guys had a specific conversation that you guys were kind of going to position ECW as a territorial system, a feeder system. We we weren't going to officially call it that call it that it was a working relationship where Paul would agree that any talent, you know, that freelance talent or any unsigned talent that Paul would help steer them towards us. And, if we had talent, let's say that was injured and they needed to get the ring rust off and they needed someplace to go work in front of uh, an audience, you know, it's, it's one thing when guys are away from the ring for a time, they can do all the cardio in the world that they want. It's a lot different than being in front of a crowd and actually working a match. Right. So guys wanted to be able to go somewhere and ECW 
allowed us that platform to send guys to. They were named guys, would help out ECW, would help us get guys work without having to put them on our shows and create a little buzz as well, get people talking. So let's talk through that. Um, there's been a lot made about money, and we're going to get to the money in just a minute. But as we're talking about 1996, I realized I glossed over the hype because it seems like um, there was an advertisement or at least a lot of heavy talk, but I think it was even promoted a little bit, that Sabu was going to be a part of the 1996 Royal Rumble, and that didn't come to fruition uh, I want you to kind of carry me through why that didn't happen. And you mentioned to me before another name that I had never heard before who was also in discussion for that Royal Rumble. Oh, my God. Here we go with rumor and innuendo. Well, that actually did happen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, there was interest in Sabu. We won a Sabu for one of the Royal Rumbles. And I, I spoke with Paul, and Paul explained to me that I needed to speak to Sabu's uncle, the original Sheik. And at the time, the original Sheik was very influential over Sabu. And Sabu obviously respected his uncle a great deal, rightfully so. Um, His uncle was a huge star all over the world. Every place he went, he got over and made money. And the Sheik had a lot of influence in Sabu and, and was very protective of the Sabu character. So I made the phone call to the Sheik and made the mistake of asking for Ed, to which the Sheik very quickly corrected me and told me that this is the Sheik. So I referred to him as the Sheik for the rest of the conversation. But I don't think that uh, the Sheik wanted his nephew in a situation like the Royal Rumble where he wasn't spotlighted and where he wasn't going to be victorious. I see. So there was some concern over how he was going to be used. And, you know, he just, he wouldn't bless it. And therefore Sabu wouldn't do it if it wasn't blessed by his uncle. So do you think we moved on? So did you guys have, just so I'm clear, and then we'll move on. Did you guys have some sort of preliminary deal in place and an understanding, at least from your side, that this was going to happen? And then Sabu kind of got cold feet based on that information from his uh, uncle? No, no, it will, it, that, this particular one was when we inquired about Sabu. Um, I don't know what happened on their side, but Paul did. It was pretty simple, you know, exactly what I just said. He said, you need to talk to his uncle. I spoke to his uncle, I guess, and his uncle wasn't cool with it, and so we didn't, we didn't go forward. But my question was, how did that get out? I mean, I, I don't know that it did, but I think it was advertised. Wouldn't what that was have... advertised? Sabu? Yeah. Oh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Well, maybe I'm, I'm sure mistaken. somebody out there will probably show me an advertisement, but I don't think Sabu was ever advertised because it didn't get past just a conversation. It didn't get past that conversation. I remember JJ Dillon, when I was telling him the story, um, kind of getting upset over it because he and the Sheik were good friends. And, you know, I didn't know that. I just made the call. I, I really didn't think oh, that see. much of it at the time. So, and JJ, JJ felt, felt like he, he could have got more. it done. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he probably could have. Wow. Well, talk to me about um, the other guy. And this is a name that I don't think has ever been out there before, but uh, there wasn't just one person that Vince was looking at uh, from ECW G-12. at the time. There was another name, and I can't believe this is a real name, but tell everybody 
the other guy, this is just hilarious to me, that Vince was interested in for the Royal Rumble? Well, I don't know if Vince was interested in him as much as I was. It, oh, it was okay. 911. And 911 was a big guy, about 6'7, six, 6'8, six, uh, looked like a biker, black, slicked hair, hair back. And all he did was a choke slam. He was like Paul Heyman's bodyguard. Right. I don't think he ever worked a match. He may have at some point, but I would hope that the bell would never ring with him in it. Um, but he was he was a a star um, at the Bingo Hall for ECW, and he had an aura about him because all he did was chokeslam people. He was very dominant. So there was, you know, this they would, you would get the nine one one chance when his music would hit, the place would go banana, and the idea was simply to have him be a part of the Royal Rumble, have him come out, choke slam a few people, get eliminated, and put a spotlight on him. I know. Okay, go ahead and say, well, how's that putting spotlight on him? If he doesn't come in and win it, he's nine one one. Well, there is a way to put spotlight on people and and do that if it's done right that's no i agree i I wasn't going to argue that point i do find it interesting say you okay i find it interesting that uh he was in the conversation because you know he's just not uh, he is huge but he's not somebody that i would have thought would have been considered for that spot but he did wind up in wcw some in 96 and 97 doing jobs through various names work some saturday nights and stuff like that so he did have some, you know, some time, some on-air time amongst the big two, but he's not one that I would have immediately thought of being, hey, here's who we need to grab. Um, but you guys did eventually go on to do a talent trade with some other folks, and some of these are curious to me. The whole Brackus situation, uh, I need you to kind of carry me through this. I believe this one was in 1997. You guys were running uh, promos for him on WWF TV for what seemed like forever and then he's in the ECW arena as a surprise. I can probably guess how this happened, but I'd like for you to kind of correct the rumors and innuendo and just tell us. Yeah, it was simple. It was Brockus was being trained uh, to come in, and he needed some ring time in front of an audience. And really, we wanted him to have ring time in front of kind of a hostile audience, which ECW was at the time. ECW was the... Those fans, some of the greatest in the world, because, man, they loved that product. They were vocal. They'd let you know if they liked you, and they'd let you know if they hated you. But they were passionate about their product. So to throw somebody into that, you're going to find out real quick whether they can swim or not. And that's simply it, was to be able to get them out in front of an audience and see what he can do. What was your, um, when you said, you know, we wanted to get him in front of a hostile audience, whose idea would that have been? Is that a Pat call? Is that a Vince call? Is that a year call? Who's giving you advice at the time when Brock, because Brockus was at tracks back in the day, wasn't he? Well, no, Brockus was before tracks. Okay. Long before tracks. So where was Brockus working out with you guys? In the studio. We had a, in the studio in the warehouse, it used to be the, the old merchandise warehouse is where we had the ring set up. And Brockus, uh, my brother, trained guys in there. So your brother was involved in training him? Yes. And your and your brother says, hey, why don't we let him sharpen up in ECW? Or do you well, remember? No, it was, it was time. You know, I was like, okay, we got to make the next step. So 
Next step is get him in front of audiences. We put him in some other spot shows in the Northeast, but then the, the idea was he had television time. We had been doing vignettes. Let's let's see how he does in ECW. And wasn't believe it or not, there wasn't a big meeting on Brockus. Okay, no, no, I understand. Like, let's, I, let, let's see. It, you can understand the fascination though, because uh, you know these guys are are seemingly on WWF payroll, but appearing in ECW. And at the time, there there's this uh, perception that all three of these companies are competing against each other, when really there's a wink and a nod agreement between two of them. Well, there was not just a wink and a nod. It was there was a financial agreement with ECW as well. We we needed ECW to be in business. We wanted that other alternative for guys to work, and we would rather have someone go and work at ECW and work for Paul than to go down south sure. and work at WCW. If if for nothing else, the um, let's call it lack of exposure. Yeah. Paul didn't have the national exposure that WCW did. So, so you could you. send a guy to ECW and they're going to, they're going to get the regional exposure, but they're going to get work. And that was important. So, um, just so I'm clear and people get annoyed when I ask these type questions, when a comes over, he's not getting a payday from Paul Heyman. He's collecting a check from Stanford and he's just working his normal shots, but it's not like he goes and gets an envelope at the end of the night, correct? Yes. Okay. All right. I'll try not to ask too many more money questions, but I do have a few because they're pertinent to the story. But uh, let's talk about a guy who I thought was money, and that's Chris Candido. Uh, Candido wrestled in Eastern Championship Wrestling in Smoky Mountain early in his career, then gets to the big time and uh, has a tag title run with your brother as the body Donna's in 95 and 96. And then towards the end of 96, uh, he finds himself leaving the WWF and joining ECW. And I've heard a hilarious story about how he quit. Do you remember the story about how he quit and can you share it? Or do we need to skip that and go somewhere else? You need to refresh my memory. Well, supposedly the story is he's, uh, not getting along with some of the guys, isn't really enjoying just the political climate at the time or the locker room or whatever the case may be. And he goes and quits to one of the agents. Maybe it's Jim Cornette. And they say, hey, you can't just quit. You can't just tell me you quit. There are contracts. You have to give a written notice. So he goes and gets his hotel receipt, flips it over. It says, I quit and hands it to him. Uh, is, that, is that the story that you remember? Or have you heard that before? No, I've never heard that one before. Okay. So when he leaves the WWF here, to the best of your knowledge, he's not on payroll. He just legitimately went to ECW. Fair? When at the very end, when 90, Chris left WWF and went to ECW, he was not on our payroll. No. Okay. So I'm sure that it will come up at some point, but Sonny, a few years later, I believe we'll call this 1998. Uh, she is maybe not too tickled with her position in the company because Sable's getting a lot. Maybe she just has a lot of stroke because of who she has relations with, whatever the case may be. She is under WWF contract, but allowed to appear on ECW programming. Kind of carry me through what the thought in, in letting a Sonny, who was really over and the most downloaded person on the internet in 1996, just two years later, appear on another product that as, wasn't. As a favor. Okay. Just, I mean, simply, you know, a lot of those things as a favor. I can remember Triple H coming to me and saying, hey, 
if ECW ever needs somebody, I'll be happy to go down there and work for them and help them out. Are you serious right now? Yes, I'm serious right now. What year would that have been? I don't just make flippant comments like I did something and with an no, actress. Yes, that, you, that you, wouldn't just, you wouldn't just freestyle that you maybe betted an actress. I, well, let me think about that. Hmm. Might be good Would for business. Would it be on a CBS morning uh, talk show? It did for uh, a couple guys I know. Well, in that case, <laughs> moving on. Uh, I have chill. I have I have high school children. By God, he has a lot of children. Triple H. Let's talk to me about. <laughs> nine. Uh, what year would that have been? Where Triple H just volunteers, he'll go to ECW. God, I I don't know what year it was, but he just he, blew my mind. Ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight, somewhere in there. No way probably he did in 98. Yeah, no. probably all those. But, yeah, he he was always game to go. It just was one of those situations where it had to be the right situation. And um, if they needed anybody, a lot of times it would be, which I'm sure we'll get to, like when Mike Awesome yeah. was their champion and we, we sent Taz down there to help him out. That so, was is a favor f- to Paul. I, we're going to fight about that, so let's, let's come back to that later. Uh, let's talk about, uh, Al snow, Al snow wrestled briefly in the early days of ECW. Uh, and then he comes back once he's kind of wrapping things up, you guys brought him in as, um, a variety of gimmicks, but his most recent one at the time was they were trying to be the new rockers and he was portraying a character named leaf Cassidy tagging with Marty Jannetty. Uh, what would that have been? Maybe Marty's 98th time with the company in 1997. I don't know. I, I love Marty. I, I felt Marty was a underutilized talent. Um, I think he's a hell of a talent, but leaf Cassidy, it was taken from leaf Garrett sure. and Sean Cassidy or whatever. David, David Cassidy, David Cassidy. Yeah. Um, so he became leaf Cassidy. Yeah. There was an independent wrestler named something like, uh, the macho warrior, Rick Hogan or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. It was, it it was just a blatant rip off and it was, you took two kind of teeny bopper rockers, put, put his name together. And that's how we came up with Leaf Cassidy. Well, it it goes, um, you know, they have a a shot at maybe being mid card and then eventually are just basically enhancement talent. But then he gets an opportunity to go back to ECW and this time is Al Snow. And the first time I remember him being in a prominent match was in their second pay-per-view hardcore heaven, 1997. And it wasn't too long after he's down there, this whole head thing blew up. Do you remember when head first caught on and became a thing for Al Snow? And did you think at the time, cause this is very early attitude era. This would have been 97. This would have been before it really blew up. He may have ended a pay-per-view in March of 98. I'm freestyling this, but I think it was March of 98 against Shane Douglas. Uh, it could have been May anyway. Uh, but it was super, super, super over. And they, oh, three. Oh gosh. Sorry. They, they, uh, this to me was another testament to what Paulie's abilities were, because this is a guy who was really doing enhancement matches when he leaves Vince he comes down and in less than a year, he's in a main, he's main eventing a pay-per-view and, and they had, you know, a, a big promotion for this head piece of business. Do you remember that being a thing? And what was the thought inside, you know, Connecticut about this head gimmick? You know, okay. And you're gonna just shit all over this, but we, 
This Mother's Day and Father's Day, look no further for the perfect gift than paintyourlife.com. It's worked for me every time, and when I say every time, I mean it. I've used paintyourlife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now, I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law, all from paintyourlife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple too. All we needed was a a picture from our phone. Boom. We're up and running. You see, paintyourlife.com can really create a hand painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson with paintyourlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together. Even if they've never been there, you pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks, but you work hand in hand with the artist to get every detail. Perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion. That's what I got. And I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Didn't pay that much attention. You know, I did watch the shows. I, I tried to keep up with it. I spoke to Paulie on a regular basis. But we weren't just like, oh, my God, what are they doing every week and, and seeing everything that was going on. Um, Paul was a genius at, at taking guys and accentuating their positives, hiding their negatives. Al Snow is a hell of a talent in the ring. And Al has a unique personality that Paul tapped into that hit a chord and really got over there. It got over for us when we brought him back and used him after the fact as Al Snow. But um, I'll tell you from my vantage point, I was happy as hell for Al. I was glad that he was doing something and making some money in, in a good spot. 
Well, he uh, he did a really good job there and um, eventually started what he called the job squad down there. And you guys even brought that back to the WWF. And I was kind of surprised that the job squad was something that you guys were comfortable with in the WWF. Can you speak on the job squad and how that got the green light? <laughs> well, that was during a time uh, when Vince Russo was up there and there were a lot of things that, you know, kind of skirted the edge. And I would say that that was one of them, but it was a unique concept. It worked. It was a way to get some other talent involved in something that you wouldn't ordinarily be involved. And it worked. Yeah, it did work. And, um, he's still making money on that today. So kudos to him. It was a good Bless idea. His heart. Um, let's talk about something that, you know, I'm really looking forward to because you and I've talked about this before. Let's go to September of 1996. We're in Philadelphia. It's in your house, mind games and in the free for all section of the show. And for those of you who, uh, weren't watching at the time, the WWF had a pay-per-view every month, but they had a little segment about a half hour before the pay-per-view that they called the free for all. And it was essentially because it was free for all for all. And it was, uh, how catchy was that? And so it's, it's an appetite. Um, you know, it's an appetizer for the show. So you get the live shots, you get a free match, you get the, uh, the big hard sell for the pay-per-view, you get some promos for the main events and the hot angles, good concept at the time. And in September of 96, uh, Justin, uh, Brad, uh, Hawk Bradshaw, is wrestling against Savio Vega. And in the front row, there are some local Philadelphia residents. And I know there's a backstory here. Kind of carry us through how that came about and what the thinking at the time was. Well, the pay-per-view was in Philadelphia, which was ECW's home. And ECW, as I said before, they, they had a cult following. They had some rabid, vocal, passionate, loyal fans. And Philly is one of those towns, probably, I'm not going to say it is my favorite place, but it's one of my favorite places to work because of the audience, because of the crowd. Uh, They let you know if they like you, they let you know if they don't like you, Uh, but they care. And we had Mick Foley in his first main event, really with us, uh, wrestling Shawn Michaels. Phenomenal match, underrated. If you haven't one seen one of the it, best ever, go check it out. Uh, in your house, mind game, September '96. Mankind, Shawn Michaels, five stars, awesome stuff. So you know we we're helping Paul out, and they're helping us out with having a place for guys to go and what have you. So the idea was, since we are in Philadelphia locally, and we knew there would be a strong presence of fans and probably get some of those ECW chants and whatever that it was a place that we could spotlight ECW, give them, you know, a spotlight on the pay-per-view and also help them out locally and also get them some national exposure as well. So the idea was, was that Paul Heyman, Tommy dreamer and the Sandman would come in during the free-for-all, make their way down to ringside quietly, 
and sit in the front row. And as they sat in the front row, we would make a a big deal out of, but also try to kind of uh, low-key it for the live audience, make it look like we're trying to not make a big deal out of it while we're making a big deal out of it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And Paul would be Paul and show that he had his tickets and so on and so forth and all this other crap. And, you know, the ushers and security would kind of shrug their shoulders. Well, in in that area, because I had been to ECW shows there and people knew that every once in a while I would show up. And for the smart fans, they knew Paul and I were friends and what have you. So I came down as Bruce and, and kind of, you know, off camera and went down to the front row and I'm, you know, pleading with Paul, like, what the hell are you doing here, man? Come on. You're just trying to make a name. Why don't you guys go and do something else? And Paul's like, I trust you. Trust me. We won't do anything wrong. Blah, blah, blah. Sandman's putting a cigarette in his mouth and threatening to light it and all this stuff. Um, and as I turned around to walk back up the aisle, behind my back, Paul stands up on the chair and gives me the double middle fingers. And the crowd erupts. Wow. So we go back, and, and the boys... Now, keep in mind, the only people that know about this is me, Vince McMahon, Paul Heyman, and I'm sure Paul smartened up Tommy Dreamer and Sandman. So none of our crew, none of our guys in the back know that, hey, man, this is work, we're working together, it's all cool. Well, they're getting fired up. And they're like, well, we'll just go out there and kick their ass. And I'm like, guys, whatever you do, do not acknowledge them. If they do something, you know, uh, just get the hell away from them and don't engage. Whatever you do, don't engage. It's just going to do exactly what they want us to do. Well, how beforehand, how comfortable yeah. with you with working the boys like that? I'm sorry. How comfortable were you with working the boys? Not, there? I'm not comfortable doing that. I hated doing it, but it was, it was something I was asked to do and I did it. And we felt that for the real reaction to get a true reaction, you can't always let people know what the hell's going to happen. And we wanted a real reaction. And all too often, if someone knows that something's coming or they know um, they're, they're waiting for it, they're acting instead of reacting, and we wanted a reaction. We wanted an honest-to-God, oh-shit moment. So, so when, when you said you were asked you know, <laughs> to do this, who asked you to do it? Well, let's go back to the only people that knew about it. And who the hell do you think would have asked me to I'm just not curious, tell anybody? Why, Vince. Why, Vince asked me not to share it with anybody. Why would Vince? Because for that reason, I just explained, okay. we want a real reactions from people. It just seems odd. And if everybody knows about it, then they're waiting for it. You're, you're setting up a spot and you're not getting a true reaction from people. Sure. So that, that's the reasoning behind it. But the one thing that I did do, because John Layfield is a big strapping Texan and crazier and all get out, I wasn't sure what the hell would happen if, if 
if John got a little too close to these guys and, and something were to take place. So I told Savio Vega, I said, listen, no matter what happens out there, I don't give a shit if they come over the railing, no matter what happens, you tie that big cowboy up and you do not let him touch anybody. And I'm putting that on you. You're the one in charge out there because they were in a strap match. And I said, so when if you guys get out in the ring, out, outside of the ring or anything happens, you tie that cowboy up and you don't let him get involved. So based on the way you explain that, he has to think, uh, maybe there's something up here. A smart guy would probably think, okay, they're going to do something. Right. Well, the idea was, was when um, uh, Savio and Bradshaw were outside of the ring and I knew the spot for Sandman to get up and spit beer on Savio. And I had security there and I had people there and I told them if they so much as breathe in the wrong direction or anything else, I want them taken out. So when Sandman spit, that was their cue to get him the hell out of there. Savio did his part. He kept Bradshaw away. Bradshaw's looking. Brad in the, the camera crew, the, the camera shots were so that you saw it, but you didn't see it. So it was framed so you would see it. But then we didn't go to it. So it didn't look like a work and that this was a plant. What I didn't really anticipate, I did, but I didn't. I thought Paul would, would have a little bit better control than he did. And, and knowing Paul, um, after that, I didn't give him a whole lot of rope. But they stayed down there too long. And it made me come down and made Jerry Briscoe come down and uh, Rene Goulet and a few other agents. And Paul and I had a safe word <laughs> that if if it got too heavy and I needed them to just get the hell out of there to get the hell out of there if if I said this one word to him. Whose idea was a safe word? Who do you think? We must have a safe word in case things get out of hand and you are ready to abort. You just look at me and you say, hmm, Bockwinkle, and I will know that it is time to go. So, uh, okay, yeah, I got it, man. And um, so they get down there and they took it a little too far. But what I didn't anticipate is when the agents got involved and the guys and Dreamer and, and Sandman are really getting everybody riled up. And you feel the crowd, man, and it was hot. That uh -huh. It was hot. It was good. Well, when I get down there, my fat ass can't get over the rail to get on the other side of the railing. And Jerry Briscoe is there, and Briscoe jumps over the railing. And I grabbed Jerry, and I said, go get in Heyman's face and tell him Bruce said, Bockwinkle, get the fuck out of here. And... There was that moment where Jerry Briscoe turned and stared at me. Right. And if looks could kill, I would have been dead about a hundred times. Because Briscoe was ready to kick somebody's ass. Sure. And in the middle of it, I'm basically saying, hey, Jerry, it's, it's all the work, man. Just uh, calm down, big boy, and, and go do this. Briscoe didn't speak to me for three days after that. Wow. Did not speak. He was so mad. The other thing I didn't anticipate was when I got backstage, the boys were all, they were all at the gorilla position and they all wanted to come down and kick everybody's ass. And I got snatched by uh, a big six foot, ten and a half redheaded dead man. 
and taken into Vince's office and said, you need to tell me right now, was that planned? I'm like, yeah. And he says, well, in the future, you need to smart somebody up back here because you almost had a damn riot. Right. But Mark, being Mark, kind of sensed that uh, we had it under control and that it was probably a work, but he was pissed that that I didn't at least clue him in on what the hell was going on so that the guys in the back weren't coming out and doing something crazy. Did you ever work uh, Undertaker ever again? Hell no. <laughs> I didn't mean to work him then. You know, I didn't. It was simply one of those situations where I was told not to tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody. So if, uh, if Heyman is worried about safe words, he had to also be worried that you guys might change your mind and just embarrass him, right? I'm sure he was, yeah, without a doubt. Uh, his legend goes he had he had his guys all all around in the crowd taz wearing an overcoat i'm ready to shoot brother you know and uh different guys in the audience are you saying that just having a good time or do you have some legit heat with taz no i don't have any heat with taz okay well you just said that in a mocking way like you're yelling you know bingo in the background all day too no that's how taz sounds doesn't he your brother okay all right well you know it's always fair to ask because somebody's going to tag him on Twitter, and uh, I like Taz, and I, don't... I love Taz. Okay, great. I like him too. Okay, uh, let's talk about. Why are you trying to stir shit up, Connor? Nah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. All right, let's roll into now. These guys. So let's you know go back again. It's September '96. They are really trying hard to get on pay per view at this point. Lots of other stuff happens. So you know. what better way than to be on our pay-per-view Correct. and get a little recognition? Correct. No, I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying that they had an uphill battle after that. That's a conversation for another day. You weren't involved in it. It doesn't matter. But around this same time, uh, you guys have some interest in Two Cold Scorpio, who had been a star for WCW. He had tagged with Buff Bagwell and uh, did some stuff for them. And then he was a television champion and had some really good matches in ECW and you guys were interested in him, and you wanted to repackage him as Flash Funk. Uh, I think he also made a debut at the same time The Rock did, around uh, Survivor Series 1996. Kind of carry me through what you saw in Too Cold Scorpio, what the thinking and getting him was, and then I want to ask about the contract angle, because that has grown to be a legend of its own based on the rumors and innuendo. Well, Scorpio was simply a suggestion from Vader. Uh, Vader and Scorpio were good friends from way back. And we brought Scorpio in. I was familiar with his work, and we met with him and his wife. Vince fell in love with him, and you know, the rest is history. So you guys make him flash funk, give him some dancers. Um, but the the talk at the time was, and... Heyman revealed this uh, years ago. He had gotten uh, a licensing deal from Tommy Boy Records for $1,000 a week for Scorpio's entrance music. And so whenever they would play that uh, music and, and do some promotion for them, he would get $1,000 a week. Well, Who would get $1,000 a week? Scorpio? ECW. Oh, okay. Um, so now when you guys sign him, ECW loses that $1,000 a week sponsorship, and his story has been in the year since that when he was on the payroll from WWF, it was actually just replacing the $1,000 that he lost when you guys 
signed Scorpio. So clear that up. Rumors. And so he who he he Paul, Paul was on the payroll that we paid him a thousand dollars for money that he allegedly lost. ECW was that was made whole by WWF in their losing a thousand dollars a week from Tommy Boy Records. They got the thousand dollars a week from Tommy Boy Records because of Scorpio. If Scorpio's with you guys, ECW loses fifty two thousand dollars a year. You guys replaced the $52,000. That's the story. True or false? False. Okay. That's the first time I've ever heard that story. Just now. Uh, do you remember anything about a $1,000 a week to ECW deal? They made at least, you know, they, they were paid on a weekly basis by us, yes. Okay. But it wasn't for that. It was simply for the working relationship and to help them out with whatever they, they needed for. But I don't think anybody ever... Said, oh, hey, we have this deal with a record company. We get a thousand. Think about that. No, no, I agree. Uh, that's why I'm asking the question. But I want to clarify because you you just kind of glossed over that part. Uh, no, I, I, I said earlier that we had a monetary situation with ECW where we compensated them, working with them to help them however they wanted to use that money. That was up to them how they wanted to use that money. I won't go into how much that they were paid on a weekly basis because that's confidential. What the but, hell does that mean? They're out of business. What does it matter? It was still a confidential deal. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna discuss how much. But they were paid on a weekly basis. And they were paid and they were to mm-hmm. use that money, whether it was to help them make payroll, whether it was to go towards whatever the hell they wanted to go towards. But it was in exchange for giving our guys a place to work and guys having a place to go developmental and what have you. So let's just talk about it. From nineteen ninety six until the end, there was a weekly check to ECW? Yes. And it was more than $1,000 a week? I'm not going to say how much it was. I don't know why you're being like... I don't know why you ask me amounts. I'm never going to answer amounts. Well, you do off air. <laughs> Just tell me Seldom. now and I'll bleep it. Seldom. Tell me now and I'll bleep it. No. You're an asshole. <laughs> so, you. okay. So, since we're talking about it, he has, it's come out at one point when ECW is in really bad financial situation, Vince gives them a loan. Will you tell us any details about that loan? Well, Paul needed help, uh, making payroll. Paul needed help. So the guys would get paid and we helped him out. It's as simple as that. It's like, you know, Hey man, I, I won't be in business next week. If I can't make my payroll this week, how much is your payroll? Okay. Here you go and help Paul out. But the story, you know, it was important for us to, as I said before, for those guys to stay in business. And it was important for the talent to continue to work for Paul rather and for them to be paid. That helped us. Okay. Well, I just want to, um, once again, clarify for everyone listening the the rumors and innuendo, and we've heard this for years and years online and even through the WWE's DVD. This $1,000 a week from Tommy Boy Records per Bruce Pritchard is bullshit. Uh, they got $1,000 a week every week from 1996 until the end. Well, he didn't say the amount, but it's more. Yes, to clarify, I never did say an amount. But it's more than $1,000 a week per Bruce Never Pritchard. said that. So is it just $1,000 a week? <laughs> okay, let's move along. Maybe I can get you to slip up a little later in the questioning. Um, when, when, uh, when when he had changed the name of this show to something to interrogate Bruce about. 
Well, I'm cool with that. I think that's kind of the format of the show already. We're just, you know, you name the show. I just ask the questions. The loan that, you know, has been talked about, I think the number is like $400,000, which seems like a lot. Do you think Vince ever thought he was getting that back? Or did he just... No. Okay. So he knew when he gave the check, like, this is not going to end Cost well. Also doing business. Yeah, okay. Great. That's what I needed to know. I know you don't want to talk about it anymore, so we'll keep rolling. And we'll talk about um, the Dudleys. And I'm sure I'm skipping some other stuff, but uh, the Dudleys are somebody that I never really imagined would be on WWE programming. And I think a lot of that comes from me actually attending shows where they come out to no music and cut just the most hardcore, vicious, foul promos ever just to get themselves over as monster heels. Um and use every word there is to use in the process. Uh, and, and then wrestled a different style and wrestled in t-shirts and just the antithesis of everything that was the WWF at the time. But then in August of 99, they make the jump. So kind of carry me through how that comes about because Bubba Ray Dudley was very instrumental in ECW. And then for him to make a jump here feels like it would be a really big deal to the company. Well, let me, let me help you out with something, and, and let's make something uh, real clear. Practically every talent that passed through ECW in their mainstays all either inquired at some time uh, to come work for us, probably with the exception of Tommy Dreamer. So it wasn't like, you know, the Dudleys had been calling. The Dudleys you know, wanted to come in and work for us. It wasn't like we, we went out and stole them or went out and wooed them and, and that they were ECW for life, uh, especially towards the end when I would hear these things about, you know, guys being so loyal to ECW. You know, they were looking for, they were looking for work. They wanted to be paid. Um, so, you know, that that's just a fact of life. I, I do kind of chuckle when everybody says, oh, well, this guy was so loyal and they – went after and lured him away. No, the Dudleys wanted to come in and, you know, we brought, brought those guys in. I will dispel. Uh, I can hear Bubba already going, no, but, uh, Bubba Dudley and Devon, they, they tell a story about when they came in for their interview and to sign their contracts that they were going from the office to the lab or to the place where we did our uh, drug tests and I had a box of like drug test kits that I needed to return to the lab. And since the Dudleys were going over there, I asked them, I said, Hey, would you guys drop these off at the lab? And to this day, Bubba Dudley swears that I asked them to carry uh, piss to the, <laughs> to the drug test lab and no, I never asked the Dudleys to carry drug samples to the testing lab. They were unused kits that were in a box sitting in my office. And since the Dudleys were going over there, they were asked to take a box. Well, he also has said that, you know, his version of the story is they called. They being Who WWF. Called? That he didn't want to leave. He wanted them to match the offer. He wanted to stay. And they called. And you're saying that's rose-colored glasses bullshit, they were pursuing a deal. I'm saying it's rose-colored glasses, and I'm saying they were pursuing If they didn't want to leave, then don't leave. Roll tight on that. 
I mean, th that's pretty simple. I don't want to leave. Okay, don't leave. Well, let's talk about, um, we're jumping around because I want to get back to the pay-per-view because that's really like the big story here to me. But uh, Taz comes over and Taz is a guy who, man, Paul Heyman made into a monster. And it's probably one of his best pieces of work because Taz was at one time, you know, one of the most over guys or the most over guy for ECW. And then he comes to the WWF and it doesn't quite go exactly as a lot of ECW fans had hoped. And he debuted him really strong. He debuts at the Royal rumble and he beats Kurt angle. Uh, but then it seemingly falls off a little bit of a cliff after that. And it's not long after, and he is an announcer. Why do you, how did the Taz signing happen? Cause he comes over as being champion, drops the belt and is on TV with you guys pretty quickly. Uh, and then how do you transition him to being an announcer? And how does that come about after he was so over with ECW? Well, the announcer part's easy. That was injuries, okay. and it, it was an accumulation of injuries where Taz couldn't compete anymore, and especially at the level that he wanted to compete. So he was given an opportunity to become an announcer. That that one's just as simple as that. Um, it happens, you know. Luckily, he was able to get into a role where he could continue to make some decent money and not have to take bumps anymore. Now, you know, when Taz came over, uh, Taz, again, it, it contacted us. I believe he contacted Vince Russo. And, you know, we talked about it. I know I spoke to Paul. We told everybody up front, you know, hey, I got to let Paul know that we're talking. And, you know, vice versa. And I let Paul, I'm the one that let Paul know that Taz was talking to us. Paul was not happy about Taz leaving. And, you know, Taz really wanted to leave. I don't know what all the problems were that those guys had, but I'm sure it was money related and Taz wanted to make a move and Taz got his lawyer involved. And, um, next thing you know, he was here, but they, you know, everybody knew what was going on there. And I think, you know, both sides would probably claim that one side didn't know what the other was doing. I think both claimed that the other one was, Contacting the other, yeah, yeah, and um, but everybody knew, uh, you know, we, we had to. I, I couldn't, I couldn't have a working relationship with ECW and then go steal their guys. Just that's not doesn't make for a good working relationship. So they just wanted to. Save I, mean, ever, face. I mean, would would that work in your business if no. you got you know a guy working for you and and you're paying a guy and then they recruit somebody else on your team to to go somewhere else? I mean, it's not cool pretty timely that you mentioned that to me uh so carry me through um you know the whole taz situation because i i, I want to talk about and i'm sure we're skipping around more than some folks would would like but i want to talk about the decision to have him be loaned back to ecw in order to beat mike awesome and how that all comes about so the backstory if you're a younger fan and don't really remember um Taz leaves in September, uh, drops the uh, belt in a three-way match, and it's an elimination match with Masato Tanaka and Mike Awesome. It's Anarchy Rules uh, 99, and Taz is the first one eliminated, and he is the champ. So that means whoever is the last man standing here is the new champ. We have guaranteed that we're going to have a new champ, and that person is Mike Awesome. And so Mike Awesome becomes the top guy in the promotion. Taz is on his way north. Um, not far, though, because you're only going from Philadelphia to New York. And now Mike Awesome is the guy. 
time passes. They have some financial troubles in ECW. Mike Awesome gets an offer from WCW and signs while he is the current WCW or ECW champion. Uh, but now he is a contracted WCW wrestler, but technically the ECW champ. So somebody has this idea. Hey, forgot to get the belt off of him. Let's let a WWF guy be a WCW guy for the ECW belt at an ECW show. That seems like the most ridiculous idea ever, but it's what happened. How did it happen and whose idea was it? Well, it was Paul Heyman's idea. And Paul looked at it simply as he had lost Taz. And now he's losing his champion in Mike Awesome. What better way, you know, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, but what better way than to take the guy that went to New York, have him come back home that he left and have him beat Mike awesome for the championship. And there was a level of trust there with Paul, with Taz, um, you know, and as I say that they weren't on the best of terms, Paul and Taz at that time, I think Paul was still bitter over Taz leaving and Taz didn't really want to do it. You know, Taz didn't want to go there. He didn't He didn't want to do the match. He felt like he had been there, done that, or he didn't feel like he could trust Paul, or he was ready to just move on with his career, or what was the thing? All the above. Okay. I think, I think all the above. And, you know, it's an uncomfortable situation when you're brought in, and, and it's an unknown, because here Mike Awesome is. He's under contract to the competition. Right. You know, they had Doug Dillinger show up with Mike Awesome, his security, at the at the event, uh, I don't even know if, if Mike dressed in the dressing room or, or what what they did, but it was that was another situation where Paul was in a bind, and he needed a big you know he needed a moment he needed a big fix, so what better what better way than to have the former champion come back, it's total shock, and beat this guy and send him on his way down south. So it was simply a favor to Paul. It was that was Paul's idea. Uh, any question on Vince's side about whether or not this was a good decision? Vince supported it. I, you know, I think there was the rumors and innuendo were all that. Oh my God, are they going to shoot on each other? Are they going to do this? They're going to do that. I, you know, I don't think that was ever really a concern, uh, ever a concern or consideration. Um, we were confident in Taz being able to hand himself. Taz is a tough guy. You know, he's an amateur, knows what he's doing in the ring. And it just, you know, professionally, I just didn't see that happening. Right. So it was it was simply something to do to, to help ECW out at the time, help Paul out, and, and make our guy look good. Well, so from there, you know, I want to touch on it, and we've talked about it before briefly in passing, but... Now a WWF contracted wrestler is the ECW world heavyweight champion. And soon after this show, this taping, you guys make the decision to put him in a SmackDown championship match against triple H, which is an interesting concept at the time, because you've got the WWF champion taking on the ECW champion. Uh, but you're, you know, you're going to take criticism from ECW fans when you have triple H beat Taz. 
I just, I just want you to talk about it, whatever you want to say, and then we'll move on. <laughs> I know you're going to shit on everything I love, so go ahead. Okay. Um, no, I, it just made sense. It's Why would you have him go over? Why would you have Taz go over? Why would you Triple book- H was the champion. He was the WWF champion at the time. And it's just the way we were going. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't to shit on ECW or anything like that. It's just what it was. I understand the decision to not have Taz beat Triple H. I don't understand the decision to put either guy in that match. It seems unnecessary. It seems like by booking that match... You well, why not? I mean, CW. why not have it? it? It's a it's an attractive match. It's one of those kind of what ifs. What's going to happen? It's an interesting matchup. And anytime you can get something where the fans can't call the outcome, that's good booking. But, yeah, I get that. It's good booking from w, from the WWF standpoint. But don't you think it well, is? both guys work for the WWF? But they're doing it with, and I know that you're going to say it's just a prop. But they're doing it with the ECW belt, and so to me, it seems like. It's a very selfish and short-sighted decision by the WWF because it doesn't help ECW, who you say that you need in business. You, and they- you put their champion on national television, on worldwide television. So you give their belt worldwide exposure. How does that hurt them? Well, he lost. Okay. Why would so you- the, the alternative is, is don't put him on at all. Is, yeah. is champion, so don't give them any promotion, well, anything at all that we're wrong? not what's... we're not going to reap the rewards of. Well, that's my question: is what's wrong with just booking him in a regular match, having Taz, you know, and have him beat a WWF guy? No, you could bring it. He could have defended an ECW guy or just a local enhancement talent, and then you get it on national television. But you don't necessarily hurt the ECW. Again, we didn't brand. we didn't own ECW. So, so just treat it wasn't that it, that, that wasn't advantageous to us. Then why are you paying them every week? So that our talent would have a place to go for developmental. If so you, they would but, stay in business for if, talent to go in if between. If you bury gigs. the belt, don't you see how that's even a little contradictory? Ken? No, I don't. I see by giving the belt exposure that it helps their brand. Even if the expo, even if it's so. Let me ask you this: Why, when WCW was beating? I mean, like a drum, they were beating WWF. I don't know how many weeks I lost count. You guys lost so much. Uh, why didn't you just send Bret Hart over or Shawn Michaels over and let Hulk Hogan beat him? Uh, not for the belt or anything, but just beat him on Nitro because that way he, your champion would have exposure on a much bigger show. We didn't have a working relationship with them. I would have tried to work one out. I mean, with this logic, it seems fucking foolproof. Maybe not. <laughs> I can't believe you don't see that that's contradictory at all. This is amazing to me. Because it's not. It is a lot. Uh, Let's move on. Uh, Rob Van Dam is a guy who really uh, gets, I think, probably the most rub out of this whole situation. Uh, There is a decision made where you guys want to. I'm interested in a phrase. I positioned all this this way for a reason. The Manhattan Center it's raw. ECW is now going to be there. Jerry Lawler is going to be, you know, spouting off at the mouth with uh, Paul Heyman all night. They're going to go back and forth between WWF matches and ECW matches. They even use the ECW packages. They let Paul Heyman do commentary and they feature ECW wrestlers, um, wrestling in a WWF ring. 
I don't understand why they would do that. They had no financial reason to do that. It just doesn't make any sense. But uh, carry me through how this comes about. ECW on Raw. The Dudleys have a match. Sabu jumps off the letter. It's a pretty memorable show. Can you carry us through that show? Yeah, it was to do something new. It was just a different way to get some new talent exposed. And I believe Paul was getting ready for his pay-per-view. And we wanted to help them out and help them. We Again, we had an interest in ECW being successful. Right. So we wanted to showcase them. We wanted to showcase the name and showcase their talents. So it was simply an opportunity to showcase some new talent and change things up a little bit. Um, previously, everything you guys had done had kind of been, you know, as far as cross promotion and joint stuff had kind of been kayfabe. You know, we just talked about the, um, the position in September of 96, where they were the front row Taz, you know, came across the television through the crowd one day with a sign that said Sabu fears Taz. So there's lots of stuff where you're kind of acknowledging them, but not really acknowledging them. And then all of a sudden, you know. ECW on Raw happens. What kind of discussions were made? Can you kind of carry us through the climate? It seems like these guys wouldn't have dressed in the same locker room. There's got to be more to this than what you're just uh, what you've offered so far. Do you, can you can you give us any more details about this particular show at the Manhattan Center? Not really. I mean, uh, simply what it was. It was a way to give them some exposure it was to help them get some national exposure and make our show a little bit different and at that point it was like hey why not you know kind of acknowledge that we do have a working agreement with these guys and so when people think of ecw they think of wwf and and vice versa so to give them some credibility and to get some new and different talent on our show just a business decision it's uh, they they work three matches that night, and it's really to promote their first pay per view, which is barely legal, which is right. coming up in April of ninety seven. Uh, this show we're talking about in particular through Manhattan Center is February twenty fourth of nineteen ninety seven, and there were follow ups where, you know, there would be, um, debates almost between Jerry Lawler and ECW folks, and ECW is constantly being ridiculed by the WWF commentator, Jerry Lawler. And it culminates in a pay-per-view match between Jerry Lawler, who's on loan from the WWF, and Tommy Dreamer, defending the honor of ECW at Hardcore uh, Heaven in the summer of 97. Do you remember, as that angle happened, um, Cornette makes an appearance inside uh, the ECW arena. Goddamn! Lawler goes down to the ECW arena and this is really hot stuff at the time. The summer of 97 is a, is a really hot time in the wrestling business. People are jumping. There's a mold in ECW who's getting guys signed over to WCW. So people are kind of nervous about who's going where and why and how. And you guys are still politely sharing talent. Um, do you remember any sort of fun antidotes or stories you can share about Lawler or Cornette inside the ECW arena? Well, let's, let's go back. Uh, that was their second pay-per-view, correct? Yes. Well, let's no, talk about the first pay-per-view. The, the second pay-per-view is, is the culmination. The, the, the summer, I believe Wrestlepalooza is what they called it, which was June of 97. It was Raven's last show. Uh, Tommy Dreamer finally beat Raven, um, and the lights go out, and, and there they are at the WWF. And I think that's the night that they 
ruptured a ball of Tommy Dreamers for him. It was it was a it was a hot angle. They burned a raw shirt. Uh, big time stuff if you've never seen it. WrestlePalooza '97, one of the better ECW shows ever. But you want to go back to the first pay per view, which is barely legal in April of that year. Right. Go ahead. What do you got? Well, no, it, it was it was ECW's first pay-per-view and and here's what i always remember about that i can't tell you one single match on the card but paul was was really excited to be on pay-per-view and paul Heyman is a as i said before and i'll say again paul's a genius paul was able to take guys with uh not not the greatest in-ring work and be able to highlight their positives and, and hide their negatives and Paul's show was great to watch because it was so quick. It was like watching a, an hour and a half or an hour music video. Right. And so as I'm sitting there and I'm watching this show and I'm talking to Paul, Paul's in the truck and I'm talking to him throughout the show and they get done. And that's where they did the lights out and Lawler appeared. Right. Right. At the end of that show. And Paul calls me right after the show and says, well, what'd you think? And I said, Paulie, you got exposed tonight. He says, well, awesome. That's a good thing, right? I said, not exactly. I said, the goddamn bell had to ring. And what do you mean? I said, I don't think I'd ever seen these guys work a match before. And it it wasn't the best presentation in the world. Again, it was so different from the presentation that was on television on a weekly basis of highlights and music videos Pre-tapes and interviews. And, and, yeah. Yeah. And then to have to sit through these 15 minute matches that were, you know, not classics. And I just felt that he really exposed the product that night and not in a good way. So then we, we fast forward and, and we had uh, agreed to do the thing with Lawler and we were always looking for something. And Paul's, you know, Paul's M.O. is he, he liked to shock. He liked to get people talking. He liked to do what couldn't be done. And while Lawler was a big shock to show up on an ECW show, I, I think that for the the fan that ECW really attracted, I-17, I think that having Jim Cornette show up was possibly even bigger because of of how open and public Paul and Jim were with their dislike for one another. Right. So it was it was simply an agreement, you know, um I think in business things come along and and you look at it does it make sense business-wise and you do things that maybe you wouldn't normally and ordinarily do otherwise and you know paul asked for it jimmy agreed to it and you know jimmy had stipulations and made made paulie pay for dinner at morton's steakhouse with him and dennis corluzzo and and paul came out and apologized to dennis Dennis and uh had a big stretch limousine for jimmy to ride you know to and from in connecticut picked him up at his home so you know Paul did what he needed to do to get the match in the ring. And then buried uh, Dennis right after, again, business. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I've heard that story from Cornette. 
Um, so that's a pretty hot angle at the time, and there's not really, and there is some follow up. We're treated to uh, lots of matches uh, starting at the um, barely legal pay per view where Rob Van Dam announces that he is the hottest free agent in wrestling, and he referred to himself as Mr. Monday Night, and he started to come into his own, and he was featured in a series of matches uh, with Rob, with um, the WWF's support on Raw. One of those early matches, uh, which is kind of fun to go back and look at now, was against Jeff Hardy, and I'm curious, why wasn't Rob Van Dam signed earlier than he was he was obviously a guy that there was a lot of interest in why do you think that didn't happen sooner rob was comfortable where he was and also at the time you know rob was being lured by wcw as well and rob was comfortable where he was with paul and with ecw at the time and you know rob's a different kind of guy rob is um he's a stand-up guy and He's not motivated necessarily by money. I think Rob is motivated by peace of mind and Zen, if you will. He's a very Zen kind of guy, but he's really mellow. And I think Rob would rather be happy than have all the money in the world. And I don't think that at the time he was really interested in working a full-time schedule and he wasn't that interested did you think that his style, uh, I'm curious because you didn't think that Sabu's style would work in the WWF. Uh, and he does have some matches on raw in 1997. Uh, they're using tables and stuff like that. And I think there's a little heat over the way they brawl through the crowd and some other stuff. You can correct that if you'd like to, but why do you think Van Dam, who also trained, uh, at the same place that Sabu did with the Sheik? and works a similar style. Why do you think that Van Dam was able to make that transition and maybe Sabu didn't have as much success? Well, Rob definitely has a, a unique look and a great look. He's a good looking guy and it's, uh, no mean to demean Sabu, but if you're in the looks department, <laughs> you put Rob and, and Sabu side by side, I think most chicks would probably dig Rob Van Dam. Um, but they, they were just different, you know, different people, different stars had, you know, their own unique qualities. And Rob was kind of like the laid back surfer guy, if you will. And it just was different. I, I dare say that each had their own marketability, Sabu and Van Dam respectfully, right. but different time, different place. Uh, what do you think, you know, in terms of, uh, the style at the time, was there any, do you remember there being any sort of pushback about these guys using chairs and tables and involving the crowd when they're doing these shots on raw for you guys, or is that not even really discussed? No, it is a concern because, you know, you're concerned with lawsuits. You're concerned about guys getting hurt and different things. And, and I think you're talking about the deal that took place in Detroit, uh, where Sabu tried to break the table like four or five times and couldn't break the table and got mad and, and went out through the crowd. No, that wasn't planned. And it was frowned upon because we didn't have security and that's a liability. That's just simple business. And when you're a company, the size of the WWF and guys are doing things that you don't know they're going to do that put other people in danger, 
that doesn't doesn't look good. So that's what happened on that, and that's that's the reason that people were upset about it. But Van Dam, you know, um, just had a different style. Rob's got a unique style, and he connected with the audience. The um, it's, it's a weird time to mention these guys, but I don't know when we'll talk about them again. PG thirteen. Uh, were an angle, were a group that was featured on Raw uh, in 95, uh, and then again with the Nation of Domination in 96 and 97, uh, and then they ultimately wind up in ECW. I find these guys hilarious. What's the real reason PG-13 you know, didn't have a longer tenure with the WWF? I think it's a variety of reasons. I, I don't think that both those guys, their maturity level at the time, um, they had, you know, a lot of extracurricular activities that, you know, they just didn't really fit in and, and missing shots and different things like that. So it's, it's a variety of reasons, uh, you either fit in and you, you know, you do your job or you don't. No, I get that. Uh, talk to me about Terry Funk. He's somebody we kind of haven't really touched on much in this show, but, uh, he works for you guys at the Royal Rumble in 1997 and uh, I think he did some shots in December as well, uh, shotgun Saturday night stuff. Uh, but then, you know, just two months after, you know, a handful of months after being in your Royal Rumble in San Antonio, he wins their world title. Was the relationship always, I'm going to be in for a few shots and then my horse gets sick? Is that the way it always went with Terry Funk and the WWF? With, yeah, with Terry, you know, Terry was his own man. Terry was Terry. And, by God, I'll do these shots. I don't want to do anything more. Even when we, we brought him in as Chainsaw Charlie, which was his idea, by the way, um, you know, it was never something that we planned on using Terry for any length of time. It was simply bring him in, team him with Jack, and, you know, do a little program with the New Age Outlaws, and whatever happens, happens. Uh, talk to me about, um, just incredible. He's a guy who works for you guys, uh, from 93 on through 97. Uh, he has a couple of different gimmicks. Aldo Montoya, the Portuguese man of war is, uh, the big one. And then for whatever reason, uh, he is sent to developmental in Memphis and then, uh, eventually released uh, with an understanding that you can't go to WCW. So he winds up in ECW and does really, really well. Uh, did, was there any thought or consideration that, Hey, we should, uh, he does come back before or right, maybe right after, maybe before, I don't know. He's there right at the end of ECW and the WWF. Is, is he a guy that you think was given a fair shake in the WWF or when you saw what they did in ECW, did you think, Hey, maybe we could have done more with him? Or do you remember having a strong opinion one way or another about him? No, and it's simply a situation where in a different environment, someone may thrive. Right. And you take them out of that environment, and they won't do so well. It's a fish out of water is not going to live and not going to thrive. But you put that fish back in water, and they may swim and have a happy life. So guys do may do better in ECW than, than they do in WWF. They may do better in WWF than they did in WCW and vice versa. It depends on their environment and depends on, you know, the material they're given and, you know, what they do with it. So, but Aldo was one of those guys, he, he came in as, as PJ, uh, 
I don't know, PJ Clark is the restaurant in New York, but he came in as uh, PJ something or other. PJ Walker. Is, is, is PJ Walker, yeah. Common, and Jerry Lawler thought he looked like uh, Jerry Seinfeld. And when we started talking to him, found out he was Portuguese. And um, that's one of those that I, I remember just scratching my head going, what the hell are these people smoking? Because uh, he met with creative services at the time, and and we loved the fact that he was Portuguese and he spoke Portuguese, and and we were going to be making a move into South America. And they come out and they do this big presentation of Aldo Montoya, soccer star, oh. Portuguese man of war, and he kicks soccer balls out into the audience, and he's this great uh, soccer player from. Portugal and everybody loves him and he's an idol to millions and and will sell soccer balls and soccer jerseys and blah 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 and blah 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 and they have posters all around you've been in the conference room on the fourth floor in yeah. Titan Tower all the way around the conference room of of Aldo Montoya the Portuguese man of war and his soccer star and we're looking at this going how the hell did they come up with it? And Vince asks the question that we're all dying to ask, but he just interrupts and goes, hang on. So this kid plays soccer? And they're like, oh, we don't know. We just thought because he's oh from my. Portugal, <laughs> that he must love soccer and we can make this for goes. But if we say that he's a soccer player and that he's big in Portugal, it's not that difficult to find out that he's not. Why would you do that? But you said you wanted a Portuguese circus. Yes, I want a Portuguese. But it, it was a, it was one of those deals where they ran. That was one of those silly gimmicks that just, yeah, does he even play soccer? And the answer to that question was no. So the Aldo Montoya soccer star gimmick was killed, but they liked the idea and the name Aldo Montoya and just made him from Portugal. So if you're from Portugal and you're a man, you must be a Portuguese man of war. That should have been on my shirt on the gimmick box. <laughs> I don't know that anybody jellyfish. would have known what that was. Let's talk about uh, some of the bigger players uh, in ACW and um, their backstory. Raven is a guy who, you know, was first in prominence in WCW, and then he comes to the WWF, portrays a couple of different characters there, does real well for you guys. I think he works in the office with you some. And, and then he goes to that ECW. That was long before ECW. Uh, that's what I'm saying. And then, yeah. he, and then he goes to ECW and kind of reinvents himself. So he finishes up in the WWF in, like, 94, and then he's into ECW and, and does real well there. Uh, until he leaves in 97. Um, when he's leaving, or, or I guess when he first comes in, when he first leaves the WWF, was that a plan? Like, we're going to do some talent trading back then? Or was he just looking for a gig and you guys cut him loose and he just landed there organically? He just landed there organically. And so then in 97, when he's he's getting a lot hotter and he's really developed a character now uh, and he's coming to his own, he signs with WCW. Are you guys even in the conversation to sign him at that point? No. What, did you talk to me about um, 
the Sandman. He's the guy who was really over in ECW, but doesn't get a shot with you guys until years later. Was the Sandman ever of any interest just based on how over his entrance was and his persona was with the fans? No. And it was simply because, you know, the beer and the, just the connotation of the Sandman. It just wasn't something that Vince was interested in. We had Steve Austin drinking beer after every match. Didn't want two guys drinking beer and there just wasn't any interest there. So you said that like, there's no credit to Sandman drinking beer that just, it's just, well, Steve Austin already does that because clearly Sandman was doing it before. Okay. He wasn't doing it on a national stage, on an international worldwide stage. So was it borrowed? So we had the we had the hottest talent in the industry at the time who doing was drinking it. beer sure. and he was doing that. Didn't want another guy coming in who, to the national worldwide audience, would have been a poor man's version of Steve. Well, I guess what I'm trying to get to here is there's a lot of these little examples. Um, do you credit ECW with helping kickstart the attitude era at all in what way well in the way you just said the most over guy in the entire business and especially your company is drinking beer uh sandman did that and there was a lot of more hardcore there was never a discussion hey let's drink beer like sandman ever it was simply it was simply steve like to drink beer steve says hey what if i celebrate like a working man same thing he's doing now and it was not, well, Sandman does that. That was never even discussed. I'm not saying that that, what I'm saying sure is. Sure you did. You just said that we did a ripoff of, well, no, you did. of the Sandman. He did it first, so we ripped it off. Well, here's what I'm saying. There seems like there's a lot of stuff that is borrowed, and you're saying that it's a feeder system. You know, I'm paraphrasing. It wasn't a feeder system at that time. No, it wasn't. Okay. Public enemy, you going to give me anything? What about them? Well, they're a big act in ECW. They make the decision to uh, sign with WCW. They're there a couple right. of years. Then they come in. I'm more interested in when they make the decision to sign with WCW. If you guys were already doing a talent trade around this time in 96, well, the, we, why weren't they of interest to you then, but they were a couple of years later? They were of interest to us then. They just got a better offer? They were. They decided to go there. Okay. That's fair. Uh, when When you get a chance to bring them back... Do you want to share the story? Well, what story do you want to hear? Well, the one where they came back and your buddy beat the shit out of them is the one that comes to mind. Well, hang on now. You know, they they came back. They they were touted as the second coming, and then the bell rang. But they their style, their their work, they were both out of shape. I love Ted Petty to death. Um, and, you know, both those guys, neither one of them are with us anymore. But their style and their attitude was not the greatest when they came in. And they came in like they were Hulk, the second coming of Hulk Hogan, and they weren't. And the situation that you're talking about is a match with the APA in which there was a finish and there was a match that was laid out. And right before they went out to do the match, the public enemy said to the APA, says, hey, we're not going to do that table spot. So they changed. They wanted to change the finish and not do the finish in the match as it was laid out. The discussion was had between Ron Simmons and John Layfield, where Ron Simmons says, well, all right, 
Um, if they don't want to go to the tables, and we'll bring the tables to them. And Ron and John went out and did their best to make sure that the finish that was laid out and that everyone agreed upon before they went up to the grill position to go out to the ring was going to happen and take place. And that's what they did. Beat the shit out of them. They did beat the shit out of them. But they, they didn't want to do business. So we got live television. And sometimes in live television, things happen. So would it have been better to go out and not do what they were all told to do? And, well, the public enemy didn't want to do it right before we went out. So is that good business? Is that what you would have rather had happen? No, I was just asking. Just wanted to see, you know, if you tell the story, that's all. You got to get hot about it. I told I told the story, and, and I, just I I'm quiet, support I'm, APA I'm on, on their decision and what they did, and I, I do not support uh, Public dead. Enemy they're for dead. their attitude and trying to change the finish of a match dead, right before the they went out. I just want to mention they're dead. I, I already mentioned that. I know, but I'm just saying. I don't support them. I don't support them. I don't support them. Uh, Nicole I said ba- I didn't support them. Okay. Uh, Nicole Bass... Um, how'd she wind up in the WWF? God help me. I don't know. That was, that was ugly. Um, that's a rude comment. She's a very attractive woman. I didn't say she was ugly. I said the situation was ugly. Okay. Um, that was, that was one of those situations of, of Vince Russo wanting something and, uh, even though it was a bad business deal, we, we got it done, and it was horrible, sight unseen, other than Russo was a Stern fan. Oh, okay, that makes so sense. So anything, anything on Stern, he just thought was the end-all, be-all, and, and if it was on Howard Stern, it was over, and it was the greatest thing ever. Um, so that explains a lot of the, the silly shit that we did then. But Nicole Bass, was, was it was an embarrassment. It was horrible. It never should have happened. And... She was dangerous, and it was um, just not a good thing. Stevie Richards is a guy who you guys put on television with the Blue Mini and Nova uh, prior to uh, the first pay-per-view using the BWO gimmick. I was kind of surprised you guys let him do the BWO on Nitro, I mean on Raw, but it happened. Uh, And then he goes to WCW in 97 and uh, ultimately winds up with you guys in 99 uh, kind of doing his old ECW gimmick where he would do impressions and then joins as a part of the uh, right to censor and has a big angle with that company or that outfit. Talk to me about Stevie Richards. He's a guy who a lot of people would have never imagined would have a shot in the WWF, but then finds himself there. Was he there because he was he had been on WCW or how did he fit in with WWF, I guess is my question. No, I saw Stevie early on when we... Uh, did the light heavyweight championship originally way back when, when we first brought Al Snow in. Um, the idea was I wanted to bring Stevie in as a single competitor then and use Stevie. Stevie didn't see himself as a light heavyweight and Stevie wanted to be a top guy. And the, the position that you know, I saw to introduce him was in that light heavyweight division. He didn't want to do it, and he stayed at ECW and then later went on to WCW. But there was interest in him beforehand. 
And Stevie's a guy that works hard at his craft and, you know, but I thought Stevie had a good run. No, I don't disagree. I thought he had a good run and it seems like he's doing uh, good stuff now. Rhino is a part of ECW uh, later. He's with the company now. Lots of, uh, you know, overlays here as far as, you know, guys going back and forth. Uh, Obviously, you know, some big names were in both spots. Shane Douglas, who we've talked about on the Radicals episode, uh, Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Jericho, lots of guys. But seemingly the two that go right from ECW TV into superstardom uh, with you guys, and it's not immediate, but it happens pretty quickly, is uh, Steve Austin and Cactus Jack. What did you... You're missing one. Okay. Brian Pillman. Oh, you know, I've, I, I don't know how I missed that. I really wanted to talk about him. Me let's, too. I don't know how you missed that either. Let's circle back to him because that is, that is in my notes, but uh, I don't know how I missed it. It was near the top of the list. I want to talk about Austin. I want to talk about Cactus Jack. Uh, can you kind of tell the story? And that both of these guys are 95, but, you know, whatever. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how they get signed because they're, they're doing really good jobs on uh, ECW now. Uh, really getting over with the crowd, really connecting, and both on the heels of being on WCW television where they weren't happy with their spots. They have a little more creative freedom with ECW. Somebody in New York sees what they're doing and says, hey, we got to get these guys. Who is that? How does that happen? And then we'll circle back to Pillman. Okay. Regarding Steve Austin, Steve Austin was signed before he went to w, uh, to ECW. Okay. Okay. Now, we had spoken to Steve when his contract was coming up beforehand, um, I, I always try to clarify this and I know Eric Bischoff gets credit for it, but it wasn't Eric Bischoff who said, you know, the guy in the black boots and black, uh, trunks and going to draw anything. That was Vince McMahon. When he saw Steve, he was like, I just don't see anything in him, especially with that silly Texas accent. We brought Steve up. We met with uh, Steve at Vince's house. And I remember he ate a dry ass chicken breast with mustard with yellow French's mustard. It was disgusting. But <laughs> beside what we had for lunch, you know, Steve um, was interested. He wanted to feel everything out. He went back to WCW. Uh, he hurt his elbow or shoulder or whatever it was, got unceremonially fired, and Steve was out of a job. So now he's more interested in coming back. We wanted to do something with Steve, had the ringmaster uh, gimmick in mind for him, but Steve needed to get some ring rust off. Steve needed a place to go. Uh, We weren't ready to bring him in at the time. So it was great. You know, hey, man, why don't you go, Polly? Can you use Steve? And Steve, why don't you go work for Polly for a while? And Paul and Steve were friends from back in their WCW days. And so Steve went in and, and did some great stuff on the mic. Um, and you know, did the stuff that he did and he, he's just a hell of a talent It shined through. There's an opportunity to see Steve's personality of Steve, not, you know, the Hollywood blondes, not stunning Steve. After you see that though, and you, why does he get Ted DiBiase as a mouthpiece? That doesn't make any sense to me. Because Vince still didn't feel that Steve had the chops, had the talking chops. It was actually Paul Heyman on Steve Austin's debut on the Brother Love Show. Paul Heyman, who called me and said, whatever you do, put a microphone in Steve Austin's hands. He'll get over. And I was told by Vince McMahon, whatever you do, 
do not let Steve say more than his one line. Wow. And, you know, it goes back to, as I've said plenty of times, you know, hey, man, it's it's live. Can't stop you. And Steve had the had the spiel, you know, about putting your hand on the TV and come touch me and all that stuff. And I said, you know what, man? We're out there. It's live. If you feel it, go for it. I'll cut you off if it's not working. And I let him go. But it wasn't until, you know, years later and Steve's in-ring work got over so well that during a time that he was injured, that he was doing these vignettes and these commercials and different things, calling out Bret Hart where his personality came out. And we got to see the Steve Austin that we all knew to, you know, grew to know and love. All right. Uh, run us through, um, Cactus Jack. Well, yeah, we're going to go through Cactus Jack. We're going to go through Pillman. And then I want to talk about live wire and then we'll wrap it up. So <laughs> I know that one's, that's what I want to end on. Uh, oh, we're going to end on something else, but that one, okay. that's okay. Great. Carry me through Cactus Jack. Cactus Jack was a guy, you know, um, Mick Foley, Loves the business unlike anybody I've ever seen. And I can go back even further to early 1990s. LaGuardia Airport. It was myself, Vince McMahon, Sergeant Slaughter, probably a few other people. And we're in baggage claim, and Cactus Jack is in baggage claim. And he's wearing red and black flannel shirt and jeans. And I remember Vince not wanting to meet Cactus Jack. Just kind of was like, to Vince, Cactus was the stereotypical wrestler. You know, he was everything about the business and about wrestlers that Vince didn't particularly care for. So he wasn't, you know, he just made his way out to the car and didn't really want to meet Cactus. Sergeant and I said hello to Cactus and what have you. Fast forward a few years, and Cactus had uh, been at WCW for a while, and then Cactus and Jim Ross were friendly. I had met Cactus at one time, and he was calling, looking for work, looking to come in. And he was doing the stuff at ECW, and I dare say that, to me, that was some of the most entertaining stuff I'd ever seen at ECW. Right. Was Cactus Jack when he would do the vignettes on the merry-go-round and I'm hardcore, I'm hardcore, I'm hardcore. And and then do the matches where he would sit in a headlock for 20 minutes. And the people would chant boring. And, and to me, it was the psychological way that Cactus worked his matches, the psychological way that Cactus... Uh, went about his interviews that was so damn intriguing and talked to him several times and, and Vince just wasn't interested. He felt that his ring work was risky. He felt that he had no longevity because of the crazy bumps that he took and was like, I don't want that guy dying on my watch. And fast forward a few more years, he's taking bumps off cages, but <laughs> it was Vince didn't, didn't want Mick and Jim Ross, myself, Jim Cornette helped too. Um, like you got to meet this guy. Right. I think you'll really like him. And Mick came in and we 
really pumped Vince up. You know, this guy is, is a hell of a talent. He can make guys look good. And maybe he's not going to be a top guy, but he's he's going to be he's going to be up there. You got to meet him. So Vince meets with uh, Mike Foley. Vince called him Mike throughout the entire uh, first meeting. Wow. You know, here here's two Irishmen, and Vince is calling him Mike. And Mick would correct him a few times. Uh, it, it's it's Mick. Uh, good for you, Mike. Anyway, pal. And Vince talked to him and had the came up with the whole mankind idea. But I would say that Cactus and his work in ECW with the the hardcore stuff and the stuff he did with his family off the chart, tremendous. Yeah, I can't I can't argue that did at you all. Fall asleep on me? No, not at all. I was just letting you go, man. I thought uh, you were gonna start chanting boring or something. No, you? I'm just glad you're not yelling. Is that what you people do? Uh, people uh that's what i was trying to avoid uh let's go through brian pillman a guy that we haven't ever talked about on the show i don't know how it's taken us this long to get to him uh really an innovator at the time and i'm curious to know how this all comes about uh he's working for wcw at the time and uh i'll let you pick it up from here Uh, you nailed it on the head he was working WCW at the time. <laughs> Brian's contract was coming up, and, and Brian uh, worked himself into a hell of a position. He got them to do a retirement deal or an I quit match on a pay per view and worked a behind the scenes angle with Eric Bischoff with the understanding that Brian would take some time off for injuries and then um, come back. And Eric let it happen. And Brian, at the same time, is calling us saying, "Hey, my deal's up. What, what can we work? What, what can we do?" And we got, you know, once Brian's deal was up, his uh, manager and agent Elliot Pollock uh, worked with us a lot, and we went back and forth with Brian. And then uh, Brian had his accident, where he flipped the Humvee, the Humvee, and. In the meantime, you know, Brian was trying to come back and doing different things, even I think even before the Humvee accident, to get people talking, Brian and Paul decided to have uh, Brian show up at ECW, and that's the infamous where he uh, apparently took his penis out of his pants. Well, he didn't. He threatened to pee in the ring. He threatened to pee in the ring. Okay. Well, rumor and innuendo says he took his penis out. I was there. I saw it. Well, I, I was there, and oh, I'm Clint from Hershey, and I was there. I saw his penis. Oh my gosh! No, no too anyway. much. So, but but Brian during that whole time was negotiating with us. I'm sure he was negotiating with WCW, and after the accident, it gave Brian a place to go and kind of work out the kinks before he came in. But Brian, yeah, Brian was a part of that, and and Brian utilized ECW to to everything that he could get out of it. And good for him. Brian uh, is maybe the only wrestler in history to get a paycheck from WWF, ECW, and WCW in the same week. Probably. That's pretty that's pretty special. Oh, that's special. No, I'm just saying, like, in terms of being, you know, all the guys pride themselves on being workers. Boy, you work yourself into getting three paychecks in the Brian same Brian worked everybody. That's amazing. Yeah, Brian worked everybody. And every once in a while, he would, he would turn and, 
he would just look at me and give me a wink and was like, okay. So you were all- sometimes he sometimes you know Brian would would take things and push it right to the edge. But you were in on the joke. Eventually, he let you in, yeah. Uh, any other interesting Brian Pillman stuff we can talk about? I know we want to talk about another thing another time, but any other good stuff we can talk about with Brian Pillman and his time with Brian, the Brian was a joy to work with, man, because he, he was just so damn creative and you never knew, you never knew what he was going to do or what was going to come out of his mouth. And, and he was just entertaining. We lost him way too soon. Yeah, I agree. Uh, real innovator at the time and uh super interesting guy to watch, uh, perform in and out of the ring, uh, just a phenomenal talent and he's gone too early. I'm glad we, uh, you reminded me to talk about him cause I, he was at the top of my list and somehow missed him. The, uh, cyber slam when he, uh, talks about pulling his Johnson out of his pants and then beating up a fan. I was in the crowd. Did it. it was amazing. Uh, okay. Live wire. I really want to talk about this one. I've always appreciated. This was a good rib, uh, live wire at the time, or you're gonna say it's not a rib. Uh, live wire was a show on USA on Saturday mornings and it was a live call-in show. I think you guys did it from the, the studio in Connecticut, right? Edit one. And so it's at edit one and, uh, it's a live show sometimes hosted by Sonny and doc Hendricks and they would take emails and they would take phone calls and they would have in studio guests. Uh, lots of good content at the time. Pretty innovative to do a show like this. And they get a caller who positions himself as Bruce from Connecticut. And if you're familiar with the voice, you know it's Paul Heyman. Uh, were you in the loop that this was going to be happening? Were you watching at the time? Did you get a laugh? What's your perspective? No, that was just a complete shoot that uh, this Bruce from Connecticut fellow called in. Come on. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Well, no, I just don't know if it's that level of communication required in the group. I'm not saying was it a shoot. I just meant, would you have? Would they have smartened you up, or is this something that's not even on your radar at the time? No, I'm the one that set it up. Okay. Why do I have to bait you for you to just tell me the fucking story? Why don't you just tell me, hey, so we had this? Well, because I don't know the questions you're asking half of the time. Okay. So like- well, just carry me through the goddamn story. All right. Paul Heyman calls into a WWF show and uses your name and state. And can you just pick it up from here and let me just calm down a minute? Well, man, you made me hit the microphone. I I remember the Bruce from Connecticut line, but it it was, it was whatever the hell we were doing. I even forget what the hell we were doing. What were we doing at the time? What was it for? Yeah, I don't remember either. I just know that it was, uh, it was something that I did. Bruce from Connecticut is, is, is a a a practical joke on me. So it's practical. It wasn't a rib. That's really what I wanted you to say, that it was or was not a rib. And you're going with was not? was not a rib. Pro Wrestling Tees forward slash Bruce Pritchard. Okay. Anything else uh, that you want to talk about since you're not going to give me much on that one? Well, no. You know, it's funny. And, again, I I look at ECW. ECW was a big help. And ECW was a very important part of things that we did. And they have their place in history. But I I do have to to laugh sometimes when people – will extol the virtues of ECW being the greatest thing ever. If it was the greatest thing ever, it'd still be in business. Wow. And, you know, it was great for its niche. And the folks, you know, it still has a very vocal fan base and a very passionate fan base to this day. I think that you could argue there are still a lot of very passionate and loyal ECW fans still out there. The 
but when I, I hear people talk about how successful it was and, and so on and so forth, it's like, well, wait a minute. They unfortunately were not able to make payroll. They unfortunately were not able to stay on national television. They never got worldwide television, and they were not able to stay in business. So there, the fact of the matter is, is that there weren't enough people that felt that way as that passionate fan base locally in Philadelphia and, and the Northeast did. So I don't mean to rain on your parade, but it's like, okay, yes, they, they did some great things. And yes, um, no, Paul's I, a friend of mine and, and I appreciate everything that he did. And I, I think, I think maybe you have me misunderstood there. You know, Houston wrestling wasn't that over either. Um, was in Houston. Yeah. Well, so was ECW in Philadelphia. And so, you know, if, right. if Houston would have just stayed running their little bingo halls in Houston, it would have been fine. We ran, too. We ran the same Houston Coliseum that had 12,000 seats. No, that's cool. I yep. mean, I appreciate that everybody, you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. The point is there's never been anybody who promoted wrestling who was worth a shit at it in the end, except Vince McMahon. Uh, That's and, not true. Okay. Well, everybody else is out of business. The number two company, everybody's wondering. Sure. And, and you know, and the reason why they're out of business is because they stopped concentrating on their business and were too worried about what Vince was doing for the old timers. But, you know, again, Hey, ECW, was awesome. That's the end of the show. ECW was ECW. They're and they they have their place in history, and I'm happy for them. Do you think it hurt the business long term? What's that? ECW. ECW. Some of the things they did, uh, yeah, didn't didn't really help. I'm not. I hate hardcore stuff. I hate the tables and the chairs and all that stuff because I I think that they did things that were dangerous, and you know, I look at poor Sabu. And he's he's in a bad way now with his hip and different things. I, I look at guys with the concussions and some of the things that were done. We're all guilty of that. Everybody in the business is guilty of that but, in the day and time. But because ECW made it popular, WWF and other people started to borrow from it because it was cool. And then it became in fashion and then injuries and just bad stuff mounted. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. So a minute ago when I said that uh, the Attitude Era started with ECW, you said no, and right there you just contradicted yourself. Stick that no, in your pipe and smoke. I said that was fair to say that they had some influence on it. They uh, didn't start it. Well, what should ECW's legacy in the wrestling business be? Paul Heyman. Paul Heyman and his creativity and his genius and being able to take um, guys what would other be would otherwise be considered a motley crew of characters and being able to package them into – an attractive package, and I thought he worked a lot of miracles. I thought Paul did a did a hell of a job. He blew my mind with the Triple uh, H revelation early in the show that he offered to go to ECW. Any other little uh, hidden little facts or tidbits you could share with us before we wrap this one up? And get well, no, there there were guys you know like Lawler. Lawler volunteered to do it. There sure. there were guys. There were top guys. I, I believe even Taker at one time said, "Yeah, I'll go do it." Austin, wow. Vince wouldn't let Austin do it. Taker offered to go to ECW. Yeah. That's amazing to me. Well, Paul had a good relationship with guys, and you always want to be able to help somebody out. When you realize that helping somebody out helps the business out, that's what it was all about. I said a lot of abouts in that. You did. That's what it's all about. What type of heat do you think um, Triple H would have had in the ECW arena had that actually happened? I-62! You know, I think that... uh, he probably would have had a lot of heat, but I think he would have 
been able to handle it and made it work for him. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh, without a doubt. I had a lot of heat. You know, I, I, you know what? I never, ever easy there, tiger. I never, ever have stepped foot in the ECW arena. Still, still, we got to correct that. I went, I've been to ECW shows around the country in different places, but never in the ECW arena. Well, it's not like it once was, but man, it was awesome back in the day. I had the privilege uh, from all the way down here in Alabama to go in 1999, and uh, it was quite the experience, and I enjoyed it. I know that uh, I'm going to get some hate for that because a lot of people online are apologists and think that it was bad for the business and it ruined everything, but it also helped create a lot of cool stuff, and I'm thankful that it happened if it gave us. It did, and I'll admit that, Conrad. But, you know, I, I still do look at the people that think it was the end-all, be-all to go, hey, man, you know, if it was that, you would have supported it, and it'd still be in business. Well, I did support it, so what else? Okay. There weren't enough Conrads. He is at Bruce Pritchard on Twitter. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. We'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. B-14! John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.